The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Welcome back, everyone, and a big hello to our new listeners. We are super excited for the third season of Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists. Our sponsor is ALS Goldspot Discoveries. They're a technology company that believes in the power of combining expert geoscientists with data analysis and artificial intelligence. They work across commodity types, deposit styles, and data sources to solve some of the top problems in mining and mineral exploration. Their sponsorship supports the sharing of ore deposit knowledge globally and brings our community together. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in PetroScience Consultants, and I'm your host for this episode. To kick off the season, we're delving straight into a fundamental issue in the field-based sciences that's particularly relevant to economic geology. Our first guest is Hallelujah Ikanjo, a PhD researcher based at ICRAG in Dublin, Ireland, and a co-author with Tom Belgrano of the article in SEG Discovery January 2022 titled Value for Value, Ending the Era of Parachute Science. You may recognize both from Ore Deposits Hub. They highlighted the negative impact of scientists who visit field locations for research and leave without collaborating with the local scientific community or interacting positively with the local people. Term broadly as parachute science, it seemed a good time to center this conversation in the ore deposit community. What brought you to Ireland to pursue your your graduate work? So I'm Hallelujah. I am a secondary PhD student at ICRAG at the University College Dublin, where I'm doing a PhD in geology, of course, economic geology. My work focuses on Rashpin and Zinc deposit that's in Namibia, in southern Namibia. And before PhD, I worked in exploration for five years. I've worked with junior companies as well as uh, some mining companies looking for base metals. Why did you, growing up in Namibia, become a geologist? Interesting question, because I'm from the northern part of Namibia, where we actually don't have rocks. Many times you hear people say, I grew up collecting rocks or climbing mountains with my family. I didn't have any of that because all we had was soil and concrete. I remember when I was grade six, we had this subject called social science, social studies. I think it was called social studies then. And the teacher explained the word geology, the study of rocks. And I didn't even know what rocks were, but I told myself that when I grow up, I'm going to study rocks. And when I got to university in 2010, I actually enrolled in geology and um, been loving it since then. Captured your imagination somehow, even without being exposed to it. But we're, we're not here to talk about your geoscience, your own work today. We met recently when we were at the Gordon Research Conference, and you spoke there about what is termed parachute science. And I think for many people, that is perhaps a new term. 
Can you explain to me first, for you, what is parachute science? To me, parachute science is when you get researchers from America um, or any country really going to any specific area conducting research and not involving local people. And when I mean local people, it's starting with researchers and also just local people, be it the community itself, the government, or anyone else that recognizes to be part from that community. That's what parachute science is to me. Right. In geoscience, I guess it's pretty easy for us to fly in somewhere and arrange a field trip and collect the rocks and go home. So obviously that's one end of the spectrum, but you're talking about more than that, more than, than just the fact that they go for a short time. It's really talking about establishing collaborative relationships with scientists as well in the country in which you're working. Yeah. I've seen this best hand where you get researchers from developed country mainly. They come in. We are used as sampling people. We're used as being people because we know the area very well. And uh, once the field season comes to an end, they fly back. And uh, the next time you hear from them is when they want to do another field season. What happens between the collection of samples and flying back and the publication, you don't hear about it. And I think that is what partial science is all about trying to make sure that we put an end to just people coming in, collecting, and living. So we're talking about value given and value take in the sense that what you sh- we, the value that you're taking should equate to the value you're giving back. So it's just not about taking, it's also about giving back to the communities where this research is being done. Okay. So is there evidence in geoscience publication? Like how, how do we know? other? You've had lived experience of this fact, and obviously from an African perspective. So what what's the data? There are a couple of authors that have looked at the statistics, and uh, Northern and at L2020 have actually done some work, and they've come to a number that between 1974 and 2017, which is really recent, they've quoted that only 30% of the geoscience publications on African topics are actually involving co-authors from the African institution. When you, when you look at that number, when you look at 30%, you think it's a big number. But if you sort of look at the distribution of numbers, that's only coming from the five countries out of the 54 countries in Africa. And this is really underrepresentation. And I think that needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it's interesting. I, before I talked to you, I did some reading about other natural sciences. And, and clearly, this is something that's been talked a lot about in biology and other field sciences where we're going and exploring places and collecting samples. So it's not alone to geoscience. It just seems like it hasn't been talked about very much for sure in our world. So what, what can we do? What, what are your best steps? <laughs> I mean, again, best steps, maybe not, but we just, in the article that we're discussing today, we gave some steps on how we can potentially end parachute science. It's not a comprehensive blast, but I think we can work with that and then we can improve it as we move along and make it better and practical. So what we suggested is, for example, funding. I think we all know research involves a lot of money. And we think that for one to really encourage or improve the participation of local people, funding is crucial. And if we can plan the local involvement in writing to sort of to make sure that when we allocate funds, this funding should not be given to anybody without proof that there is a local involvement, for example. And local involvement 
it's not necessarily just about the researcher, right? Sometimes there are people who, for example, working for government surveys that you take with to the field, right? And they can also form, for example, part of the authorship. But if there's no funding allocated to them, governments, they do give traveling money to their people. It's not, not sufficient. So if we can start with funding that cater or factor in local involvement, I think that makes uh, life easier for everyone. Because the first thing is funding. We don't have enough money to pay for transport for to take everyone to the field. We do not have enough funding to pay for local participation. But if we do factor in that when we apply for funding, I think that might solve the problem. It could be a requirement of grants. There are other grants that require a certain level of community participation or community outreach or education. So they're talking, that's different. It's not the research. It's actually trying to just engage community. But in this case, you know, why not include this is a, a requirement that you have to document from your grants. Yeah, talking of requirements, I think these some of these things or some of the steps that we proposed, funding, authorship, conferences in community organizations, for example, or deposits hub, which helps connect people from different parts of the world. Some of these things are actually presented in regulatory documents that some bodies have come up with. I've not seen a lot of these documents, but I know in Namibia there is a document that facilitates research not just for geology, but a science document that uh, researchers should uh, uh, should follow when they're coming to do research. And the question is, do people know about this document? No, they don't know about these documents. I think we also need to communicate better about documents that are in places that we can follow to guide with research. Right. You also mentioned collaboration generally and conferences. Yeah. So in what in what way can we support this effort through conferences? I think one thing I've, I've noticed since I came in academia or joined the academia through my PhD uh, work is a lot of conferences are based in the Western world. It's in Europe, in the States. And it's quite expensive for someone from, for example, a developing country to self-fund themselves to come to these conferences. But if they were part of a team that has acquired funding, which incorporated in supporting researchers they will be able to come present their work. Because at times you go to conferences and the presenter will be from Europe or from America, from a developed country. And then all they do is acknowledge, we do acknowledge our authors from South Africa, from Namibia, from Zambia, from South America, or from wherever, without them being actually present. So I think we need to provide that platform, co-authors from developing countries to be able to afford to come to these conferences, or we can actually subsidize them where we lower the fees for people from developing countries to be able to attend these conferences. Yeah, I wonder how things are changing or will change if we continue to do more online conferences. And I know internet access isn't always that easy in some places as well, but at least it does help to level the playing field a little bit in terms of who can present. Just to add to that, I think with COVID, the pandemic has actually made us realize that we don't have to be to attend conferences in, pers- in person. We can have great conferences online. And I've, I've attended so many of those during the pandemic, and they were as fruitful as being in-person conference. So if we can't afford to uh, subsidize, if we can't afford to fully sponsor researchers that are willing to come attend this conference or that would want to come attend these conferences. We could host some of these things online. I think it, it, it would be as great as being in person. 
or we could do hybrid. A lot of a lot of, for example, societies are doing hybrid conferences, and that's great because it eliminates the pressure of people trying to source money to pay for flights, accommodations, and all these travel arrangements. Yeah, yeah, no, they're, they're not cheap things to do. I think there are a couple of things that we can talk about in terms of partial science. So number one, I'm a young geoscientist, and of course, I would love to learn from, from everyone, uh, local scientists or international scientists. And I think if we do not end parachute science, I think that's also creating dependence on external parties, external expert, experts. And if we do not develop our local people becoming experts into a subject. And then whenever we have a problem to be solved, it's always we are inviting a certain person from somewhere outside Africa, outside your country to come do the work. When they come in to do the work, they they hardly involve local people because the experts are paid for the amount of time they're on site. So they get to do their work within a day or two and then they, they pick up. All you get is a report, but there is no transferred skills. So I think one of the reasons why it's important to end to end partial sciences to eliminate that dependency on external um, experts. Let's develop our own experts in-house. And I think um, that's, for me, I would love, I would love that uh, happen, especially in, in any country, really. It doesn't have to be a developed or a developing country. It should be anywhere, really. Yeah. So highlighting transfer of skills and development of the people that you're working with. Yeah. So that was number one. Was there, there was a second? So I've spent little time in academia and I've seen back home that we don't have a lot of young people interested in research. And because all they say is, what's the point of doing research? So the point I'm trying to raise is there is no effort from the local people to do research. So without funding, a lot of researchers tend to not want to join academia to do research and rather join industry where there's actually no need for you to look for funding to do research. Right. And and presumably as a young person going through university, there's limited role models of those who are engaged in active research. So it just self-perpetuates. I've given an example of how I sort of experience people coming in and doing work and picking up, but I've also been on the other side where I'm an example of what parachute science should not be. Well, it's one example, but I mean, it, it's a good start. Yeah. Like I am doing PhD because someone offered me an opportunity to work on a deposit in Namibia that can potentially contribute to the economic growth of the country. And this person is Mary Hitman, who we all know. I first met Mary in 2014, when I was just fresh from university. And he came to Namibia with a student that was doing master's with the company that I was working for at the time. And I was assigned to be the field assistant, right? right. And I was curious, I was coming out of university, I was curious, I was asking a lot of questions. And I really enjoyed working with a student and also enjoying learning from Mary. He was really great. Some of the questions that I asked, which never made sense looking back now, I never showed that. And he kept in touch, I kept in touch. And when the opportunity was presented by the company that they had these questions that they needed answers to, he reached out to me saying, we have this opportunity. Would you like this opportunity? In fact, I came to the Restore Summer School and I met with a team who are now currently my supervisors. And we went through this project. And at first I was like, I never really thought of doing PhD. But I went back home. It took me a year to actually process what this project would do to myself, my self-development. And just the mind itself, because it's in a belt where we only have one mind. And if it closes down, that's a lot of people losing jobs and things like that. But I think after processing this for a year, I took the position. And that's how I ended up in Ireland. 
So again, there are people that are trying to end parachute science. Is it enough that it's one in a million people? No, can we do better? Of course we can do better. Yeah. But that's just an example of me showing that I've, I've sort of seen the other side of parachute science at least. It stopped, <laughs> right. An example of good practice and of people who stay connected. It's comes back to even how well many scientists collaborate, right? Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so so but, what can um, the early career researchers do to to support the change? I think we all talk about networking. A lot of collaboration come out of networks that we create, right? And I think we need to start creating networks at a very young a stage in our career. And through that net collaborations will be will be uh, created. And I think the question of how, how do I get access to end? I think it's go to conferences. Uh, <laughs> you'll meet end the sign up for societies like the Society of Economic Geologists. I think that's a great way. Or SGA, those are great platforms for people to, to meet and network and, um, join student chapters. And there's so much benefit being part of a student chapter. You get mentorship, right? And you get opportunities. It's actually an easier way to get opportunities when they're advertised, be job opportunities, be PhD opportunities. So I think we need to start networking. We need to start joining organizations that can benefit us. And then we need to, we just need to show up as young people and learn from the end time. So we need to learn from marriage. We need to learn from the, the older generation so we can carry on once they have retired. But we hope they don't retire before the transfer of that information, that skill to us. <laughs> exactly. It's not to denigrate what people have done in the past, yeah. but it's to understand what the process was and how it impacted local people, both positively and negatively. Yeah. Yeah. And how we can move forward and change it. Because in, like in our article, we actually wrote about a pressure science just being people from wealthier countries going to do work in the, in, in developing country. But I think parachute science can be people from any other place, be it a developed country, go do work in local areas, but they don't actually involve local people from there. So it doesn't have to just be people from developed countries going to developing countries. You can parachute in your own developed country as long as you don't involve local people. Yeah. And the solution is for us all to have deeper and stronger collaborations with the people yeah. from the places where we work. Yeah. Thank you. So if there's a need to create better collaboration and communication with the people who live in our field locations, are things changing from an institutional point of view? We spoke to Isabel Shambafor, a senior geothermal scientist at GNS Science in New Zealand, to get her take on the way forward. She is leading a program drilling a deep geothermal well, and is literally at the cutting edge of science, working at high temperatures and with supercritical fluids, but also with the communities in which the project is based. Well, first of all, well, thank you, because it's a pleasure to talk to, to you today. My name is Isabel Schumpel, and I am French originally, and I did my undergrad in Clermont-Ferrand, where I did my master, and I moved to do a PhD at Geneva with Robert Moritz and Louis Van Bode on the gold copper deposit in Bulgaria, Chilovet. I think I can work all my career on the system, and I will still not be bored 
And I have some questions, I think. That's just the way it is. But the fact that I'm not at university and that I'm working in a place like GNS Science, we have some support from the government. We can apply for contestable funds. But we also do a lot of consultancy, particularly in geothermal, right. with the company. So you have a very a deep partnership with actually the reality of that world, right? Right. So the fact that we can do this, that makes your science very relevant. So it, we always bring back into, okay, why this is relevant? How can we help New Zealand? How can we help the benefits? You know, it's, it's bringing New Zealand to an international scene. It's how we can leverage the community to increase the, you know, just the status of life and things like that. So this, this type of thinking, it's really hard to do this when you're in isolation at the university, where like if you are in a group where you had, you know, 30 scientists working in, in the geothermal field, plus some business development, plus some Maori strategy leaders, plus, you know, you have this entire machine, I will say, yeah. that makes what you do a lot more impactful, I think. Yes. Yeah. So in the current project you've been leading, you've been engaged with the Maori community, the local Absolutely. community. And, and so how, how did that start? Where were you in the process of the research when you decided that that was part of what you were going to do? Seven, eight years ago, there was really a strong push from the New Zealand government to be inclusive and to develop a bicultural environment in New Zealand. And you had in the proposal, like, you know, when you're writing an NSF proposal, you had to have a, a what we call a vision mataronga part, which address which address some of the, your your knowledge of the Maori value and the Maori culture and belief associated with the work you're doing. So that forced a lot of of scientists to to think about. Wait, hang on a minute. Like I'm not I'm not from New Zealand. How am I going to integrate? And it was extremely challenging and scary for for a lot of us. I think it was probably easier for foreigners because we had no inherited, you know, cultural bias or educational bias that we had. So for us, that was, we were already foreigner anyway right. in a country and I'm not even English. So I was very open-minded on, on this. And then what happened is as part of this project, so Geothermal the Next Generation, we had because of the, the main debt that I wanted to develop when we developed the proposal, I wanted to make the science relevant and relevant for everyone. And so there is a lot of inclusion work that we're drawn about this aspect, but we need to be able to communicate the science. There is a lot of, you know, geothermal sites that are a joint venture. They are economic business by Maori Trust already, but they were not really that engaged originally in the conversation. We always used to, to go directly with the, the power company. So we did the inverse, actually. We started communicating with the Maori Trust and understanding their what, you know, if you're taking a, a geothermal site such as Rotokawa, which is very famous because it has one of the highest gold content, probably in the, in, in some of the meds. So why is it relevant for the population? So the Nati Tawa living on top and that own the land and, you know, that are this joint venture. Because it's a very different value set than, you know, your traditional economic businesses. And so we, we just started a conversation. I think our key, the key message that I had was like, well, look, I'm a scientist. I, I do not know everything. I never been down that five kilometer. 
we have some technique that we can explain, but it doesn't mean we own the truth. And they, that was a very humble approach. That's a key statement. It doesn't mean we own the truth. It's easy to forget that. Yeah, it's and it's and it's very easy for a scientist to to with all the education that we had about the way we're doing science uh, to explain to people, oh, this is you know this is how it is, and this geothermal site there is this magmatic intrusion at depth, and all of this stuff thing. And but for for them. They have their story, or they call that the Kerido. So they add their, their story. And we, you need, you're learning a lot actually by listening their story and the way they're explaining what is happening underneath and what is so significant or the, 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 the cultural implication of that site. Because they will recall maybe some events, some matter to more events that happened 150 years ago. And no one has a record of it or things like that, you know? Right. So it, so there is a, a past. But we are, for example, some of the work that the project has been doing, not me, obviously, directly, because I, I, my tenure is very limited. But we have been uh, looking and working with the linguistics to explain there is not even, for example, the term geothermal fluids, which is not actually proper term, that should be adotermal fluids. But anyway. Geothermal fluid, which is used, which is used everywhere, right? Doesn't even exist in the language. So it's making, you know, this type of approach as well that is really, wait a minute, we're talking about that. We, you want to be inclusive. We need to be actually developing a language that is suitable for discussing this. Did they have concerns to have scientists coming to talk to them? Was that, or were they no. just, they were they open to hear what it was you were thinking and doing? The way the Maori community or the iwi community is organized in New Zealand, there's no, uh, you know, it's not like the the white and the Maori. That's just doesn't happen. It's more like the English right. culture, the English or you know Western culture, and and different trust and hapus and family that exist in with different descendants, different spakapapa that they all relate to a different waka, different canoe that came to New Zealand. So they all have a different organization, a different, so you kind of have to judge to know who, which group you're talking to as well. Uh, doesn't make things easier. So when you're foreigner, let me tell you, but it's, it's interesting because they all have different story and about different sites, right? I didn't have any bad experience. It's a matter of approaching with a, a respect and a, and, and a way of like, as I said, we, we have a view of the world, which is a scientific view. So science has no culture, no barrier. Like we observe facts and the fact that we observe are multicultural. There's no, you know, you, we all observe that the sky is blue. So this type of thing have no, no frontier. It's the framework that is around the understanding, the value that we're putting around it that is cultural. And so we, it's really important to, to put this both facts in perspective and trying to respect this is our scientific view. If you have another view, that's fine. However, for to advance, you know, the, for example, the utilization of a field, we kind of need to use both reference from the scientific world. That doesn't touch right. anything of due of belief or that doesn't touch anything like that. And the more respectful I think on that, the easier the discussion has been. And we do, we do a lot. So, and we are following some, 
strategic deadline of engagement that we are where in place at the GNS level as well, because there's a certain order of who you should interact with. So your engagement strategy is coordinated with your research program, like it's an integrated thing. Absolutely. They're both going together. And we developed that before even GNS at the strategy. And that's our engagement is including Maori as the rest of the population. It's not, we have a specific engagement strategy for, no, it's like everybody at the same level. And we have some level of interaction between, you know, people that just need to be informed, like via the website and people that help us making decisions. So it's, it's the whole research program is, it's not a third of a budget per year, but it's a, it's at least a quarter of a budget that goes to that. So for scientists, it's like, oh my, this is, you know, how can you put, that's a big budget. And then you put, you know, $800,000 to do social science and planning and, and over engagement and developing, you know, a Maori language, because that's, that's the only way we have to take your nature paper and making them relevant. You, right. you need to convert this high-end science into something that is tangible and that will make a, a difference, particularly in, in a project that is looking at, you know, the next phase of development for a country. I mean, this is, it's not the research okay, that's going to drill. Let's just put it that way. We'll, we'll be very happy to work on the, you know, the rocks that coming out and the fluids that coming out, but no, None of us are going to be able to drill or to make a decision on consent. So you need to be aware of all of this thing to make it very relevant. And it's not everyone in a project that has to do that. That's the key thing. There's some scientists that are really good and, you know, very specialized and you let them do this high-end science and high-end experiments and that's fine. And then you hire people. That is their job. And it's, it's very important to make the distinction sometimes. Geotomonic generation is, it's one of those, um, high fund governmental program for five years. They are not going to give you 12 million and saying, Hey, go ahead. They want to benefit to New Zealand. They want to see the end user, you know, implication. So when I, when I started designing, I, I wanted, let's just face it. I want to drill hole and I want to see what kind of if we can eat magma as well, you know, this time. But when I started designing, I actually went straight to someone outside of GNS to help me on the communication and the planning. And so we actually subcontract all of these people, most of, most of them, right? Because they have some companies. So it's in the planning phase of the research proposal that we, we design all of this. I knew people from outside that were good at designing strategy, that were good at right. engagement plan. And, and you just go where, you know, people have those skills and they're generally not the scientists. So, yeah. So the lesson is if you can't afford to pay for that, then you need to find collaborators or social scientists to work with who can maybe incorporate it into their work and also support you in what you're doing. Yeah. So greater interdisciplinary Absolutely. interaction between social scientists, people who understand engagement, yeah, and the yeah, scientists. And, it's, and, and it, it's a true multidisciplinary. And I think in some of us large projects, it's easier for like geologists. We used to work with geophysicists. We used to work, you know, when you have a, we're trying to understand a system. And so you have to bring all the geoscience discipline together. So, you know, numerical modeler and engineer and yeah, geophysicist and 
all of those different tools. And it's, it's fantastic. So you're getting so much knowledge out of yeah. those people that is, you know, what, for, for what? Just the end is to publish in peer review that most of the majority of the people cannot have access to because you have to pay for it. So it was, it was really okay. We're going to take. And so you needed to bring like an interior, like, and in, like that's why this team is called integrate is because we wanted to integrate the knowledge with the society. And so they, you know, they're going to go and knock on the door of scientists and say, Hey, do you have a cool feel that's coming? Can we do a piece of in the blog and just discuss that? And, and, and it's, I was very fortunate to get, you know, the support and the money and people really keen to communicate more about the science. Cause at the same time, that gave us a framework, you know, to advertise for the new papers, for, you know, the significance. And so they're quite keen. Scientists are quite keen on that as well. You know, yeah, yeah, they, absolutely. Yeah. They're all pretty proud of their work. So that's why the, the engagement was, you know, with everyone, Maori included. Right. You always have to make an effort. Look, um, here in New Zealand's university, they have to do it. It's not, you know, they have to co-design big endeavor program and people with the Maori population. It's not something that just GNS does. It's, Every Everybody does. Right. Everybody does. If you're a mathematician, it's a little bit more challenging. I give you that. <laughs> but um But a field science. I mean But a field yeah. science like like any any geoscience broad scale. So so question about when you're engaging with the community or with one of these clans or family group. Here in, in BC when we engage with First Nations, it's often you end up in full day meetings, listening circles, those sorts of of dialogue situations. So, is is that similar? We have different there's different level. So there's a few group where we just go and having a a meeting during their the trust board member meeting, and then we're trying to organize. So in the Maori community, there is a what we call Marae, which is basically the it's kind of a center home kind of the place where the, the the hapus are getting together. And so that's a place where you share um, knowledge orally, like you, you share credit or you're sharing your stories and things like that. And so we've been exchanging some staying overnight in some marae. We're trying to organize a new one. Obviously, COVID has not been helping no. uh, in doing this type of thing. But it's also the one I went, the latest one was, you know, you had a day where the scientists presented their whatever view, and then you had a the, the, some different people they respected in the family of the hierarchy of the group that will tell you their story and their worldview. And that really like an exchange collaboration. And most of those programs are really like they're co-designed together. So the way we have some some tone like to co-design for the benefits of both party. And it's, I mean, it's amazing to have this kind of funding mechanism in the country because it's not necessary everywhere and it's not very understood everywhere as well. But I mean, one of the things that I, I also wanted to, to address around that, obviously the, the Maori culture is coming a long way from being um, oppressed in New Zealand to being you know, recognize and as a really an entity that you just a co- normal conversation like you and I, they recognize the importance of having their the young generation pursuing and having the most opening and education. And as one of the things that we, we wanted, we wanted to help the, the future leader of, of the geotermal community of New Zealand. And 
because business has to push, some of these leaders are going to be from Maori descent. And it's very important because they're carrying with them the notion of their value, which is a lot around people, a hundred years, sustainability, a lot of the benefit for the community. And then you have the money and economic business. That's, that's the order of things. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the money, yes, it needs to be economically viable. And then, okay, is it going to be? Yeah, fine. Let's just forget. It doesn't really matter how much, you know, dividend you're going to get and things like that. It's like, how that's going to bring benefit to my people? How that's going to bring benefits to the community? How can we raise and educate the next generation? So they know and they are educated and they have the knowledge to make the best decision in the future. And I think that was very important for all of us working in this integrate program to identify that and to give opportunity because, you know, if you're thinking in 20 years, the people that are going to work and develop geothermal in New Zealand, it's already some geothermal, you know, joint venture with Maori Trust. It's, it's a lot better if there are you know, people that are knowledgeable and exactly, and they're going to be the people, the decision maker, they're definitely going to be the decision makers. Right. The local people, the people who are impacted can ask questions that sometimes in science and in planning, we're so focused on other things that we, we don't necessarily think about. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I've seen, I mean, you can imagine as in, in New Zealand, how many people we you know, ask to help them get access to geothermal field to get a sample of the fluid from overseas. Or, oh yeah, I have this team of, you know, we just write this NSF proposal and we, we have money to come and sample for two weeks. Those people do not interact. They have no idea. Where like for us, we, we're there. So, so how do you respond to them? In this modern age? Well, in this modern age, I say, I'm very honest with most of the people. And I say, it's not straightforward to get access. You need permission, you need engagement, and you need... Doing field is challenging in New Zealand. Right. Uh, because of that. And I I also arrive with this GNS Crown Research Institute at... Uh, right. Which, you know... Sounds a bit colonial. <laughs> you think? <laughs> so I need to be very humble about that. So it's, I, I can put them in contact with some companies and that, that's what it is. If they are really interesting to a true collaboration, I am happy to help them, um, with, you know, organizing a, you know, having a workshop and a meeting and explain what the research is about and, you know, take an extra day in your travel and do that. Right. It's not that difficult. Right. And it's very important for people that live here, including yeah. me, but yeah, yeah. including yeah. any researcher, because <laughs> um, there's nothing, um, yeah, nothing worse. But, and I can't, I, I can't even imagine, like we were talking about, you know, Alleluia at the beginning, she must, ex- like that must be even worse. Like as so, so, so many people probably have been coming and but, going and I'm explaining how that work you know, kind of mentality and not having any feedback. And not, not having any skill transfer either. And in no. the case, in your case, where people are asking for fluids from you, well, I would argue that perhaps the skill transfer is from you back to them. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but in our case, it's more like, how do you bring the local academic community, the local people, how do you bring everybody along in this work as opposed to flying in and the work done on a handful of samples. But, Absolutely. but even worse, 
is not just their lack of geological context, but the lack of community context and the lack it's, of community collaboration. Yeah. Well, the way we're doing it, we won't stop that because it's, you know, the way university or the way funding agency design, you're not necessarily working in an environment that you know, right? In the society that you know, in a relationship that you know, that's in particular true for university. I think government research institute have a lot more in that space because we do not have the choice. And that some people enjoy it, some people really don't, but it's, we have to be more engaged. But if, I mean, for me now being doing some science here, I will not go into South America or go into Africa without contacting the local geological survey, without contacting the people that work there and say, Hey, I want to hear your story. I want to be, you know, I want to collaborate with you. It's not that hard to take a person with you on a field trip or to take a person sampling and to add a name on a paper. It's really not that hard. And it's, it's, no, but it's true. That's not their job to help you find sample to increase your agendas. That's their job is to increase the knowledge of the area and to increase the society business. So maybe you don't link directly with the society and the community, but, and that could be via the intermediate of the government research or the mining geologist or, you know, there's so many people that are on, on site that you need right. to link with and they can do the linking bit, but the, the knowledge you're acquiring is relevant to them. So make the effort of actually communicating back this science and to include them so they, so they can take the lesson with them as well. It's not that, it's really not that difficult. It's just being, you know, it's awful what I'm going to say, but it's being a good human. <laughs> you know, it's like, a, it's not that well, hard. But Wolverine, that, that science is human. It's a human endeavor and we engage with humans. And so it's, it isn't something separate. It's particularly in resource with the job we're doing. Like if you are working on yeah, meteorites, which probably don't have that much of, except the, you know, pure knowledge. Right. But when you start working on and always work in the resource space, there is a direct human implication to your science. There's a direct link with society that, you know, and in economic geology, it's the same. In geothermal research, it's the same. But that doesn't mean you cannot do both. You just need to have the framework to, to be able to understand the two different concepts. So it's, it's really not that hard to engage right at the beginning. Start the conversation when you're designing the project, not, not when you are funded, but it's, I mean, that's for me, that's been, that's pretty cool. Let's just put it that way. Thank you to Hallelujah Kanjo and Isabel Shambafor for sharing your expertise and insights with us. And many thanks to all our listeners for joining us. If you're interested in more stories about community engagement, Check out episode 10. I'm Ann Thompson. Thanks for joining me to think about how we can end the era of parachute science and create value for value in research collaborations. We plan to bring you at least another 12 episodes this season. Next week, we will explore the world of geomicrobiology and its role in exploration, geoscience, and mining. Do we need to rethink low-temperature geochemistry? This is season three of Discovery to Recovery, and all the episodes are available at segweb.org slash podcasts and most other places you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG and ALS Goldspot on Twitter, LinkedIn, and their other social media channels to get notified about new releases. This episode was produced by your host, 
with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Britt Blumel, Hallie Kievel, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Catch you next time. <laughs>